This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yadi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, I want to tell you today about one Pasuk, one verse from this week's Torah portion that I have been running through my head day after day after day through this week of anguish and miracle. That verse comes from Genesis chapter 30, and it is offered in the voice of our ancestor Rachel, Rachel. She says, Havalibanim v'im ayin. Meta Anochi. Give me children, and if not, I will die. Or as could be rendered in today's parlance and in this context, give me my children, or I will die. I've been thinking about this line as I heard the mother of two hostage children plead a couple of weeks ago, please just take me to Gaza so I can be with them. I've been thinking about this line as I heard Rachel Goldberg, Hirsch, Goldberg Polin's mother, talk about what life is like for her, knowing that her child is on the other side of the border. I've been thinking about this line over and over as we've heard the voices of so many, especially so many mothers, crying out for their children and offering expressions of angst and anguish along the lines of our matriarch, Rachel. Give me my children or I will die. This week, even amidst the moments of incredible light and hope that emerged yesterday with this ceasefire, and the first rounds of captives being returned to their families. I hear Rachel's voice, Rachel's voice, echoing in my head over and over again. And I want to talk about what it means today for us to hear the voices of those women, of those mothers that are crying out in this moment to be heard. We need to talk about this especially now, because over the last week or so, we have had some new evidence come to light that has to be elevated and considered and reckoned with. And I'm talking about the spotters of Nachal Oz, those who served in the Israel Defense Forces Gaza Division. In Hebrew, the spotters are called Tatspitanit. This role is almost entirely filled by women in the army. Their job is to surveil the border and to raise alarm if and when they observe anything suspicious that's happening. Here's what we now know. For those who've been asking over the course of the past seven weeks how it is that Israel's vaunted intelligence and security apparatus could possibly miss the signs 
of such a massive murderous action as the one carried out on October 7th, the answer is that the signs were not missed. The spotters saw plenty of suspicious activity over the course of many, many months. According to a new report in Haaretz, these women saw senior Hamas officials preparing military exercises and holding briefings at the border. They saw Hamas drone activity. They saw Hamas build a replica of an Israeli tank and an Israeli observation tower. And they watched as Hamas practiced shelling both of them. They witnessed Hamas disable Israeli security cameras at the border. They observed vehicles amassing at the border, vans, motorcycles, and trucks. Shockingly, much of the preparation for the massacres of October 7th occurred in broad daylight. It was as if they were not even trying to hide what they were planning. And the spotters witnessed all of it, and they were stunned, and they were scared because they understood what it was that they were seeing. Again and again, they made official reports with increasing concern and urgency to senior officers, but they were consistently ignored. How could this be? To those spotters who survived, the answer is sadly crystal clear. It is a toxic combination of arrogance and male chauvinism, which was well known and had been growing over the past couple of years. Already a year ago, the women had lodged formal complaints that their voice was simply not being heard and that their professional opinion was not being given due weight. The women were told, you are our eyes, not the head that needs to make decisions about the information that you are giving us. The women were warned that they did not understand what they were seeing. They were mocked, they were silenced, they were disregarded. One high-ranking Israeli official who visited Nachal O's base this year said it is reported explicitly to them, I do not want to hear another word about this nonsense. If you nudge me about this again, you will stand trial. On October 7th, when the infiltration from Gaza began, the women knew exactly what was happening. They had seen it. They had warned of all of the evidence that was leading to this moment for many months. We now know that one senior intelligence officer in Shimona Mataim, in the vaunted senior intelligence unit, explicitly documented Hamas's intention not only of breaching the border and carrying out these attacks on military targets, but also attacks on civilians. But when she placed her report, her senior officer responded saying, this seems imaginary to me. On October 7th, 15 of the spotters, those women who had raised the alarm were killed by Hamas. Seven more of them were taken captive. At least one of those has subsequently been killed. Two of them survived, but only after witnessing their friends being executed before them and playing dead by hiding beneath their bodies until they were rescued 
under fire many hours later. As one survivor explained, they abandoned our friends to die because nobody wanted to listen to us. It's beneath their dignity to listen to a sergeant to tell them something contrary to what senior intelligence officers are telling them. Who am I, some little woman, she said, before a man with the rank of major or lieutenant colonel for whom everybody stands at attention when he enters the room. It is very clear now to these survivors that because the spotters are exclusively young women, there is no doubt that if men had been sitting at those screens, things would have looked differently on October 7th. It's unthinkable what is now coming to light. But that's not all. Evidence now points to egregious sexual and gender-based assaults against Israeli women in the midst of the massacres of October 7th. Of course, there is a long and tortured history of wars being fought on the bodies of women, of rape being used as a tool of war. What is perhaps most surprising now is what many are pointing to as the betrayal of the international agencies that are dedicated to tracking and holding forces accountable for these atrocities because the victims are Israeli Jews. Professor Ruth Halperin Kadari, who served for 12 years on the UN Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, has spoken about the widespread failure to condemn sexual assault against Israeli victims on October 7th, even despite video and eyewitness evidence. As Halperin Kadari has explained, the human rights groups that she has worked with were founded to protect women from violence, to champion women's rights, and to acknowledge when harm is done to women. And now, when we Israeli women are faced with the most horrible occurrence of conflict-related sexual violence, there is, she says, complete silence. And there's even more. Already before October 7th, Itmar Ben-Gvir, the national security minister, had been lobbying for the establishment of private armed militia in the West Bank, many of you remember. Now, post-October 7th, we see that Israelis are, at his prodding, arming themselves in what's called community security squads, being established across the country where people are now being armed with thousands of personal assault rifles. Not surprisingly, this is raising many concerns about public safety, including and especially for women. One domestic violence organization reports that they're now receiving calls every single day from worried women and domestic violence survivors that their abusers will now get access to a firearm. And this fear is only exacerbated by the almost unfathomable reality that the distribution plan for these weapons did not contain, according to reports, a screening mechanism that would prevent men with criminal records related to domestic violence from acquiring a weapon. And the Israel Women's Network warns that the strengthening of the rhetoric of achdut ha'am, the unity of the people, tends to quash women's dignity and safety in the interest of unity. All of this paints a truly devastating picture, the shocking and horrifying truth that women are on the front lines, endangered on the battlefield, 
endangered in the public space, and even endangered in their own homes. And that's before we even mention the excruciating toll of war on Palestinian women. Thousands of women and children have been killed in Gaza in Israel's retaliation since October 7th. International agencies analyzing the differentiated impact of war on women and men estimate that in addition to all the other wartime public health concerns, there are 50,000 women in Gaza who are currently pregnant. And here I quote, 180 Palestinian women are delivering babies every day right now in Gaza without water, without painkillers, without anesthesia for C-sections, without electricity for incubators and without medical supplies. Could you imagine? According to the rights agencies that are dedicated to supporting Palestinian women, the situation for women in Gaza is truly terrible and it was already precarious, they say, before the war given the structural gender discrimination in Gaza, including laws in Palestine which assume women to be under the protection and guardianship of men. Such structures increase women's risks to gender-based violence and food insecurity and make them more likely than men to be living in substandard temporary shelters when they're displaced. And so it seems that on both sides of the border, Many of those in power subscribe to that messianic fever dream that I spoke about on Yom Kippur, in which women must be fully subjugated to men, forced into traditional gender roles that ignore, sideline, or marginalize our voices, and ultimately aspire to eliminate women from public life altogether. That's why I believe I keep hearing the voice of Rachel Menu, of Rachel, our ancestor, this week. Her sister, Leah, births one child after the next, but she can't get pregnant, and she is increasingly full of despair. Give me children, or I will die. And this is how Jacob, Rachel's partner, her great love, responds. Jacob, the Torah says, was incensed at Rachel. Can I take the place of God who has denied you the fruit of the womb? He doesn't just dismiss her concerns. He's enraged by her tears. Rabbi David Kimchi, the great medieval French rabbi known as the Radak, imagines Jacob saying to his wife, God denied you children, I didn't. You have to pray to God, not berate me. As far as I'm concerned, I've already given you everything I can. If you are barren, ask God to open your womb. That's what your sister did. Look how her prayers have been answered. His words are so painful, so insensitive. It's so egregious that even the rabbis naturally inclined to see the good in Jacob can't excuse it. It was on account of Jacob's callousness to Rachel, says Ramban, that the Holy One punishes him. Is this the way to answer a woman who is in anguish? By your life, your children are destined to stand trial before Rachel's son, Joseph. The rabbis hint here that all of Jacob's struggles from this point on, and there are many, stem from his inability to see and hear and empathize with Rachel, a woman he deeply loved, 
who was in anguish. I've always been struck by this story. Rachel's not crying out for some kind of magical remedy or some immediate solution. She needs to not be gaslit by the men in her life. She needs her husband, who loves her, to see her, to validate her concerns, her fear, her worry. She needs help holding her broken heart. I learned from Rachel that this might be the greatest and most universal spiritual need, the need to be taken seriously, to be seen. And it's no mistake that the person crying out to be seen and heard and taken seriously here is a woman living in a man's world. And that the ramifications of her husband's failure to do so affect not only her, but the whole family. That was thousands of years ago. How painful that the same instincts and inclinations plague our society today. If only, if only we could have heard the voices of those women crying out. If only we could now. It's not lost to me that our dear Vivian Silver, lifelong peace activist who was murdered by Hamas on October 7th, founded a movement not only for peace, but for a woman-led peace effort, demanding the full participation of women in all aspects of peacemaking and ensuring security. Women Wage Peace, her organization, Nashim Osot Shalom, is the largest grassroots peace movement in Israel today with more than 44,000 members. This movement is made up of young and old women, religious and secular, Jewish, Arab, Druze, and Bedouin, and it partners closely with Women of the Sun, a Palestinian women's peace movement. Women must lead the movement for peace, they argue, because women are essentially a missing cohort in the political arena, and women have a unique contribution to make in the creation of public accord and in the processes of negotiation. Many of Vivian's Palestinian and Bedouin partners and friends were at her funeral last week. And as I shared last Shabbat, leaders in the peace and justice movement said that even amidst their grief and their devastation, Vivian's funeral was the first hopeful moment since October 7th. This is because they recognize that as one of Vivian's fellow peace activists, Palestinian Israeli Hadar Hani eulogized Hamas has not murdered your vision. You cannot kill compassion, humanity, solidarity, and the yearning for a safe life. We must continue your journey, the journey toward everyone having a good and safe life in this homeland. I wish that our ancestor Jacob had learned to see Rachel, to hear her, to believe her in her pain. I wish that the commanders had listened to the Tatspitanit, to the spotters, to the women who saw what was coming and warned but were not believed. And they and the nation paid the ultimate price. I wish that women were seen not as an ob obstacle to achdut, to national unity, but as the communal glue I wish that the United Nations and human rights agencies that are designed explicitly to hear the voices of women could also hear the cries of Israeli and Jewish women too and recognize the atrocities that those women suffered on October 7th. 
And I will continue to wish and to fight to ensure that we who so desperately want the world to see and hear us open our eyes and ears and hearts to the Palestinian women who are suffering so terribly today. Coretta Scott King once famously said, women, if the soul of the nation is to be saved, I believe that you must become its soul. With each passing day since this horrible war began, I become convinced that we must do what so many before us have failed to do. We must become the soul of our nations, of our people, of our movements. We must imagine a next chapter in which women are not silenced and mocked and ignored and marginalized and disregarded, but women are the leaders of the movement for peace. Women lead the reckoning, the repair, and the reconstruction of our broken hearts and of our world. Kenihiratson. So let it. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon. <laughs>